It is the best-selling book in history. No volume ever written has been more loved and quoted. And its words, sometimes simple and sometimes mysterious, should always be studied carefully. It is the Bible, the Word of God. Welcome to Bible Answers Live, providing accurate and practical answers to all your Bible questions. This broadcast is a previously recorded episode. To receive any of the Bible resources mentioned in this broadcast, call 800-835-6747. Once again, that's 800-835-6747. Now, here's your host from Amazing Facts International, Pastor Doug Batchelor. Hello, friends. Would you like to hear an amazing fact? Dragonflies are among the fastest of all insects, having been clocked at over 60 miles an hour. Fossils tell us that before the flood, some dragonflies had a wingspan of nearly three feet. Not only are they fast, but they're strong too. About half of their body mass is devoted to flight muscles, and they have the ability to lift more than twice their body weight, a feat that no man-made aircraft has ever come near. They can take off backwards, then accelerate at warp speed, then stop in an instant. They can also execute an unbanked turn as if on a pivot, somersault in the heat of combat and fly virtually any maneuver using an infinite combination of its four wings. Not only can the dragonfly outmaneuver anything else on wings, it can see better too. Its wraparound compound eyes contain over 30,000 lenses, providing a 360 degree field of view. In fact, a dragonfly can see a gnat three feet away, dart from its nest, seize and devour the prey and return to its perch all in about one second. In addition, the success rate when hunting is nearly 100%, where compared to like a peregrine falcon or a lion, it's 25%. The U.S. Air Force has studied the amazing flight versatility of dragonflies in wind tunnels, hoping to uncover the secret of their incredible aerodynamic abilities. Yet, the extraordinary flying ability and seeing ability of dragonflies doesn't match up with some characters in the Bible, Pastor Ross. <laughs> well, I know where you're going with that, Pastor Doug, talking about speed. I mean, dragonflies are fast, but in comparison to other created beings, they don't even come close. We're talking about angels. <laughs> angels, the Bible says, also has wings. We have a description of angels with wings in the Bible. But these amazing uh, creations, these amazing beings, uh, the Bible calls them ministering spirits, can travel faster than the speed of light. So we're thinking probably the speed of thought, you'd think. There's something between uh, the speed of light and how fast angels go. We don't know what that measurement is, but mm -hmm. there's an example in the Bible, I believe, in the book of Daniel. Yeah, there's an interesting passage. You're finding Daniel chapter 9, a little bit of the background here. You have the prophet Daniel who's praying for understanding. And in response to his prayer, the angel Gabriel is sent to answer Daniel's prayer. And we actually find the verse here in Daniel chapter 9, starting in verse 21. It says, Yes, while I was speaking in prayer, this is Daniel the prophet, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, reached me about the time of the evening offering. So, Pastor Doug, here we have, here we have uh, Daniel, I should say, the prophet praying for understanding. And then the angel Gabriel gets the commission, go answer uh, Daniel's request. We find in verse 23 of the same chapter, it says, now Gabriel is speaking, and he says, at the beginning of your supplication, 
That's the beginning of his prayer. The commandment went out, and I have come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved. Therefore consider the matter and understand the vision. So, you look back a little further in the chapter, you probably got ten minutes of talking, or maybe even less, where Daniel is praying. He begins his prayer, confessing his sins. From that point to where Gabriel suddenly appears in front of Daniel, he flies from heaven to earth in a very short period of time. Yeah, it's just... Uh fractions of seconds or minutes mm-hmm. going all that distance which is encouraging to know when you're in trouble and you pray it doesn't take very long for the uh, paramedic to get to you mm-hmm. the, the heavenly paramedic can what do they call it, the 911 response time it's pretty quick for heaven well pastor ross it's good to be here for the program tonight want to welcome you friends if you've got bible questions we're going to launch off that's what this program's all about and you can either watch on um, 3 abn or I'm sorry, not 3ABN yet. We're, we're going on there soon. We're going to be on uh, AFTV, Good News Network, and um, Facebook, Amazing Facts, and that's the Amazing Facts Facebook page, Doug Batchelor Facebook page, and we invite you to call in with your questions. If you have a question, number is 800-463-7297. We also have another phone number we want to tell you about, and that number is 800 800- 835-6747. We'll be repeating this throughout the program. That is our free resource phone line. Again, that's 800-835-6747. Pastor Doug, we were talking about angels to begin the program. We have an amazing fact study guide that talks about a special angel-born message that comes from heaven to the earth, and that study guide is called Angel Messages from Space. It's Talking about the three angels' messages that we find in Revelation chapter 14. We'll be happy to send this study guide to anyone who calls an ass. All you need to do is call 800-835-6747 and you can ask for the free offer. You can ask for offer number 137 or ask by name, Angel Messages from Space. And we'll be happy to send that to anyone who calls an ass. If you're outside of North America, please take a look at the Amazing Facts Facebook page and you'll be able to read that. Actually, the website, I should say. You'll be able to read the study guide right there. Yes. Before we go to the phone lines, we always like to begin with prayer. So let's do that right now. Dear Father, we thank you that we have this time once again where we can just gather together through media, open up your word and mm-hmm. study. Father, we thank you for those who are listening and we pray your blessing upon this program. Guide us into a clearer understanding of what the Bible teaches. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we ready to go to the phone lines. You know, before we do that, Pastor, we should just mention, I think some of our folks who tune in regularly every week, they realize that um, we've been gone for two weeks. We just finished up a series that we did in uh, Las Vegas called Inspiration, the Bible's Greatest Stories. I believe that full 10-part series is still available at the Amazing Facts YouTube page or YouTube channel. And if yes. you have not seen that, friends, we encourage you to take a look at that. It was just such a joy to be able to share these Bible truths. And Pastor Doug, one of my favorite topics, uh, as you know, is where you take Bible stories and you bring out different uh, practical lessons. And uh, that was just such a blessing. So friends, if you haven't yet seen it, please make sure that you look at Inspiration, the Bible's Greatest Stories. All right, ready to go to the phone lines. We've got April listening in Florida. April, welcome to the program. Hi, good evening, Pastor Doug. Good evening, Pastor John. It's good to hear you guys again. Thank you for calling. <laughs> Thank you for accepting my call. Um, Inspiration was awesome in Las Vegas, and um, Cover to Cover Part 7 was awesome, too. So well, my question you. is, thank you. So my question is, in the book of John, Jesus mentioned nobody has seen the face of God or 
uh, I think he said nobody's seen the face of God. But I believe Abraham, Moses, and Elijah are in heaven. Also, when Jesus was on the mountain, and I'm sorry, I don't have my Bible with me. Um, when Jesus was on the mountain, I believe, with Abraham and Elijah, James, Peter, and John, I believe, saw them. So why would Jesus say, I think, to the Pharisees, nobody has seen the face of God except for the Son of Man? Yeah, I think that the key there is Jesus actually says, no man hath seen the Father. And so people have seen Jesus the Son. Now, if you look exa- for an example, if you go to Exodus chapter 33, Moses says, Lord, show me your glory. And he said, uh, no man can see my uh, glory. Matter of fact, let me see. If you look in verse 20, he said, you cannot see my face. No man can see my face and live. And so to see the face of God in his undiminished glory uh, would just be too much. Now, that's because we're in our sinful condition. So once Moses and Elijah are in heaven and they've got their glorified bodies, they can endure the presence of God. Indeed, Adam and Eve used to walk with God in the garden so they could see God. And they were probably, you know, spending time with God the Son in those uh, encounters. But uh, God the Father in particular in his undiminished glory, uh, humans, especially in our lost condition, we could not bear the sight. It would consume us, be like a laser. So that's, there's a distinction there. And often when people have seen God, um, he's, been, he's veiled his divinity in, uh, in the form of a man or something and um, would appear to people like Abraham and Jacob and um, Manoah, or, you know, Manoah and his wife. So would that be Christ that appeared in the Old Testament to Abraham? And yeah, those, those are called Christophanies. Mm-hmm. They're the pre-incarnation appearances of Jesus. Jesus appeared several times. That's why Jesus said to the Jewish leaders, you know, Abraham longed to see my day and he saw it. Jesus appeared to Abraham, and of course, uh, Abraham saw Christ in the sacrifice of uh, when he offered Isaac. He saw him prefigured there. So I hope that makes sense, April, that uh, it is still true. No man can see the face of God the Father, but clearly people have seen God the Son. All right, next caller that we have is Palmer listening from, um, is that Iowa? Palmer, welcome to the program. Oh, I'm glad to be here. I'm glad you guys were willing to take this uh, question. Sure. The question is, um, the in Daniel chapter 2, the stone that turns into a mountain and fills the whole earth, does that is that a literal kingdom after the millennium? Well, let's, let's use some biblical hermeneutics here. When we look at Daniel 2, and you see there's in the image, their head is of gold and the arms are silver and the belly is bronze and the legs are iron and the feet are iron and clay. Do those other metals represent real kingdoms, Palmer? And, uh, you know, obviously Babylon really represented a literal kingdom of Babylon, the head of gold. And the silver was a literal kingdom of Persia. So when you get down to the stone to be consistent, it must be a literal kingdom of Jesus. And not only did Christ, you know, begin preaching the spiritual kingdom when he came 2,000 years ago, we're looking forward to a literal kingdom. Uh, The spiritual kingdom has always been available. It's within you. But the literal kingdom is still future because, you know, the the devil is contesting this world. And but Jesus is going to, you know, create a new heavens and new earth. And says the knowledge of God will fill the world. That's when that new kingdom is established on earth. 
You know, Pastor Doug, there's an interesting verse that I like in Matthew 21, verse 44. And Palmer, maybe you've never seen this verse before. It's actually Jesus. And he says, Whoever falls upon this stone shall be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. It's kind of interesting. Christ here is referring to Daniel chapter 2 because the stone that comes and strikes the image upon its feet, it says it grinds all of these various metals to powder and the wind blows it away and then the stone grows and becomes a great mountain. So to fall upon the stone, the stone being Christ, our hearts are broken. But there is a warning. If we don't take advantage of the salvation that Jesus wants to give us, uh, when the second coming occurs, we're going to be turning to the rocks and the mountains as they fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits upon the throne. So yes, th it's a very literal kingdom that will be established. Now there's phases of that kingdom. You have the second coming mm -hmm. of Christ where the righteous are taken to heaven for a thousand years, the wicked are destroyed. But then at the end of the thousand years, you have the great white throne judgment and the wicked are destroyed and then the earth is recreated. The new heavens, the new earth. Yes. All right. Well, thanks for your call, Palmer. we got Michael also from Michigan. Michael, welcome to the program. Yes. Hello, Pastor Doug, Pastor Ross. Thanks for taking my question. Yeah. My question is if uh, Daniel 9, 24 through 27 is uh, a repeat and enlargement of the kingdom of grace, where can we find that in Daniel 2? And you say Daniel 9. Well, it's talking about Daniel 9, chapter 24 through 27 is really that's the prophecy of Christ's uh, first coming from the time that he would be um, anointed with the Holy Spirit at his baptism. That's at the end of the 483 uh, days or years um, to his crucifixion in the midst of that final week when he causes the sacrifice to cease. And so, you know, that's a kingdom of grace. When you're in Daniel chapter two, it's talking about God's a literal kingdom. So when Jesus comes, it's, you know, I, well, let me say this differently. The kingdom of grace actually is available from creation what that lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world everybody saved old testament new testament is saved by grace so all through daniel 2 god's people are always spared through grace nobody's saved by law well i think you you do find an interesting feature when you look at daniel chapter 2 and daniel chapter 7 and you get daniel chapter 8 and then daniel chapter 9 it does cover um, much of the same time period, mm -hmm. but each of the various visions amplify and give additional details. So Daniel chapter 2 is focused primarily on powers, political powers, and ultimately the kingdom of God being established on earth. And then you find in Daniel 9, the emphasis there is on the spiritual kingdom, the establishment of that kingdom that Jesus preached when he came and he said, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's the kingdom of grace. So. Daniel is addressing both the kingdom of glory as well as the kingdom of grace in the various visions in Daniel 2, Daniel 7. You also have the judgment that's referred to in Daniel 7, and you also find that referred to in Daniel 8. So there's a number of parallels between these visions. Yeah. So I hope that helps a little bit, Michael. And we appreciate, yeah, that you can see the grace all the way through all the prophecies. But, uh, yeah, they continue to expand not only in Daniel and Revelation. They continue to enlarge. All right, I think we're ready for Marcus. Marcus, welcome. Listening on, listening from Tennessee. Marcus, welcome to the program. Oh, hi. Um, um, my question is, what is the image to the beast? All right, very good. When you read in Revelation chapter 13, it talks about that the, there's two beasts in Revelation 13. You got this first beast, and um, 
it comes up out of the sea. And then you get the second beast that comes up out of the land. And he encourages the world to make an image to the first beast who had a wound by the sword, a deadly wound, and, but yet he's revived. He still lived. And the first beast was the persecuting power of the Dark Ages from like 538 to about 1798. That was 1260 years when the papal power uh, was persecuting uh, like 50 million uh, Christians died during that time and Jews and they get the Huguenots and the Waldenses and, and many others. Um, and th this is not, you know, something original with our radio program. This is what the Protestants taught, like Luther, Wesley, uh, Spurgeon. I mean, you can go down the line. All the Puritans and the Protestants believe that. So that would be the first beast. But then you get this other beast, which we believe is the United States, which has, you know, it's kind of been the beachhead for Protestants. But there's going to be apostasy, which we already see in the church. And they're going to encourage the world to make an image. That means a likeness. They're going to do a, recreate a religious political system that is very similar and that is going to be, once again, a persecuting power if you do not worship the way you're told. That's what it says. If you do not worship the image of the beast, you can't buy or sell and you'll ultimately be killed. And um, I don't think those days are very far away. I always think it's interesting. You know, if you look at a picture of the Vatican and then you look at a picture of the Capitol building, <laughs> they, they look like they're copied after each other. And you look in front of the Vatican, they've got a, a great obelisk is there. And in front of the Capitol, you've got the Washington Monument. And so <laughs> it's, it's kind of interesting. They're both kind of based on this uh, Greco-Roman architecture. But that's not the image. It's not the architecture. It's the, the power of the government that it's going to be a persecuting power. Yeah. yeah. I think, Pastor Doug, you mentioned it a little earlier. During the Dark Ages, you had a religious power, the church, that was using the state, the political power, to enforce worship or a certain type of worship. So an image to the beast would be when religious powers in the United States uh, put emphasis or um, motivate, coerce the government to start forcing a certain type of worship or religion. That would be an image to the first beast. That's like a facsimile is making an image of something. And the second beast encourages the world. It's like a facsimile of the first beast. Right, right. We think image, we think idol. It's not like the world, world's going to be told to worship a big Buddha. It's talking about it'll be a similar system. And then it's not only the United States, but with the support of the United States, it spreads around the world. Right, it's global. You know, we have a study guide. It's called the United States in Bible Prophecy, just the U.S. in Bible Prophecy. And we'll be happy to send this to anyone who wants to learn more about this. This is such an important and fascinating study. If you'd like to receive that, the number to call is 800-835-6747. You can ask for the study guide. It's called the USA in Bible Prophecy. We'll be happy to send it to anyone who calls and asks. We've got Fred listening from Connecticut. Fred, welcome to the program. Uh, yes. Um, should a Christian uh, be playing the stock market? All right, good question. Well, when you say playing the stock market, I think a Christian ought to avoid anything that uh, borders on gambling. Now, investing in the stock market is it's not uh, nothing wrong with that morally, because if you put your money in the bank, what banks do is they invest in the market. Banks don't just sit on the money there. They lend it out and and they try and gain interest. And um, when you invest in the stock market, you're basically buying part ownership of companies. Now, as a Christian, I would not recommend you buy part ownership of 
R.J. R. Reynolds, what is it, uh, tobacco. Uh, you might not want to buy part ownership in Anheuser-Busch, uh, which makes Budweiser. Those are not things that Christians should support. But there are, you know, uh, legitimate companies that, uh, you know, maybe are a construction company or whatever, and they're doing well, and you'd like to invest in it. There's nothing wrong with that. When people start doing a lot of day trading, it's almost like they're doing speculation, and, and <laughs> that can kind of border on gambling. It can be very dangerous. But uh, there's nothing morally wrong with investing money in the stock market. And I think there are companies that specialize in uh, certain companies that, that have a good reputation, that are not involved in tobacco, alcohol, or certain forms of in entertainment. And um, a Christian can uh, work with those different investment companies and know that your funds are going to a good cause. Yeah, and when you buy a mutual fund, a mutual fund is a company that has a bouquet of stocks they bought that are either conservative or they're aggressive or they're overseas or whatever. And, and um, you know, Jesus said in that parable of the ten talents, he condemns the lazy servant who hides his money, he buries it, says you could have at least given it to the bankers that I'd get interest. And so typically over time the stock market increases. There's an occasional crash, but <laughs> it usually goes up. All right, thank you for your call, Fred. We've got Anthony listening in New York. Anthony, welcome to the program. Hello, good evening, pastors. Um, I have a pretty serious question. Um, I want to know, how do we um, know if someone is struggling with demon possession, demonic possession, and if, if, if so, uh, what do we do or what can we do to help, if, if anything? Well, all right, let's assume that you know it's demonic depression. We'll answer the second part of the question first. What can you do to help? In the Bible, there's no question that Jesus said that, you know, you will have power. You can pray and uh, you can cast out devils. And um, you, the disciples came to Jesus once and said, we tried to cast this devil out of this man's son and we couldn't. And he said, well, this kind only comes forth by prayer and fasting. So through prayer, sometimes if it's especially serious, you pray and fast. Uh, in the Bible, sometimes it's, you know, um, Claiming the name of Jesus, Paul did it that way when the girl was following him in Philippi. Uh, sometimes they laid hands on somebody or touched them. But so Christians should pray for others if they're grappling with demonic possession. I've done a lot of work overseas, and it's more prevalent. Uh, Pastor Ross was born in Africa. It's more prevalent in some of these countries There's a lot of where there's a lot of spiritualism. And uh, I've had people just go berserk during my meeting. The pastors grabbed the person, man or woman, and they prayed over them, and you'd see their sanity return. So there's that. Now, how do you know if it's demonic possession? Well, that's a, that's a more difficult question. Uh, you know, there are some people that have just got a plain old medical problem that's affecting their behavior. And, um, you know, and <laughs> a doctor can sometimes help you identify something like that. Um, there's a thin line sometimes between what may be purely demonic and spiritual and what might be physiological. And I think the devil can even combine the two, meaning a person might have a propensity to behave erratically and the devil will take advantage of the, the chemical or biological problem and with a spiritual push, pushes them over the edge. So... Uh, that is difficult. Sometimes it's hard to tell. I've noticed that some people that uh, when it's uh, 
um, satanic or it's spiritual, it's like they, they become preoccupied with spiritual things. Even the devils, the demons possessed devils, they would say, they call Jesus out. We know who you are, Jesus, son of the most high God. They became obsessed with spiritual things. And of course, I think the devil is very good in masquerading his his influence over people in in western societies it might not be that prevalent because people aren't worshiping the spirits as you might find it in some other places but the devil's hold over the hearts and the minds of people in western countries are just as strong if not stronger than some of these other places the materialism and That's pride right. yeah absolutely you know i have a book that i wrote anthony and it's called broken chains and it talks about when jesus cast a devil or a legion of devils out of a man that was desperately possessed now that's not among the free books it's a little it's a little bigger book and but you can get that uh by just going to the amazing facts website it's called broken chains all right thanks for your call we got eric and he's listening in uh, indiana eric welcome to the program hello uh, there's a strong pattern in the Old Testament of all the kings being judged at the end of their lives according to doing what is right in the sight of the Lord or what is evil in the sight of the Lord. And certain terms such as high places or groves or sacred poles or asherim poles are used. And when we compare the Revelation, the symbols of Jezebel being defined as one who teaches sexual immorality or Babylon spreading it throughout the whole world or the name written in the forehead of the woman being prostitute, how strong of a case can we make that God was referring to prostitution in these kings' judgments, and how seriously does God take uh, prostitution and judge societies by the level in it? Well, prostitution, they call it the oldest profession, is very clearly condemned in the Bible. And um, it is also true that in many of the ancient religions, in these cult religions, uh, even in just the last 70 years, they still had it in India, where some of the Hindu temples had what they call temple uh, virgins, but they didn't stay that way long. And it was a terrible way of abusing young girls. Um, but uh, a lot of the ancient idolatry involved sexual promiscuity. And they, they called about sacrifices on the high places to the ashram. Um, not so much with Baal worship as with some of the others. But um, God typically calls idolatry harlotry in the Bible. And because Babylon is, there's so much idolatry in Revelation 17, that, that woman, she's called the harlot. So whenever God's people went to worship idols, God called it infidelity or harlotry. So there's an overlap between the two. You can't always say that every time people worshiped idols that there was you know, prostitution uh, or you know, they had the temple prostitutes or whatever. Not every religion had that, but every time they, they got went after idols, God called it harlotry. So I don't know, that's kind of a vague distinction, but I hope that made sense, Eric. And thank you for your question. Looks like we're running into our mid-time break. Don't go away, friends. We're coming back. We're going to do more Bible questions. And don't forget, you can look at the series that was just produced. It's called greateststories.org. Stay tuned. Bible Answers Live will return shortly. Doug Batchelor was the teenage son of a millionaire father and show business mother, yet he was living in a cave. He had everything money could buy, everything but happiness. 
but all of the fun and excitement he enjoyed left his life out of control. His search eventually led him to a cave above Palm Springs that became his home. While Doug scavenged for food in garbage bins, his father owned a yacht, a Learjet, and an airline. But in his cave home, he discovered a dust-covered Bible. As he began to read, he soon learned of his true purpose in life. The Richest Caveman is the extraordinary true story of Doug Batchelor that tells how a rebellious teenager who once lived in a cave became a tremendous soul winner for Jesus Christ. It's a thrilling testimony of the transforming power of God's Word. To order your copy of The Richest Caveman, call 800-538-7275 or visit afbookstore.com. In six days, God created the heavens and the earth. For thousands of years, man has worshiped God on the seventh day of the week. Now, each week, millions of people worship on the first day. What happened? Why did God create a day of rest? Does it really matter what day we worship? Who is behind this great shift? Discover the truth behind God's law and how it was changed. Visit SabbathTruth.com. Would you like to know God's plan for our troubled world and solutions for your life's challenges? Beautifully redesigned and updated, Amazing Facts 27 Bible Study Guides provide straightforward Bible-based answers that are enlightening, encouraging, and easy to understand, giving you real, relevant Bible answers to questions like, how can I have healthier relationships? When will Jesus come? And much more. Order yours today by visiting afbookstore.com or by calling 800-538-7275. You're listening to Bible Answers Live, where every question answered provides a clearer picture of God and His plan to save you. So what are you waiting for? Get practical answers about the good book for a better life today. This broadcast is a previously recorded episode. If you'd like answers to your Bible-related questions on the air, please call us next Sunday between 7 p.m. and 8 p.m. Pacific Time. To receive any of the Bible resources mentioned in this evening's program, call 800-835-6747. Once again, that's 800-835-6747. Now, let's rejoin our hosts for more Bible Answers Live. Hi, listening friends. If you have uh, joined us along the way, this is Bible Answers Live, and we're here to do our best to answer your Bible questions. And if you want to call in with a question, it's 800-GOD-SAYS. That's 800-463-7297. And we're not going to tarry long. We're going to go back to the phones. My name is Doug Batchelor. My name is Jean Ross. And we have uh, Darius listening on the phone from Oklahoma. Darius, welcome to the program. Hey, Pastor. Good night. Can you hear me? We can. Okay. Hey, um, this is my question. So I wanted to know if I should go back back to my church because my pastor told me something that I know that's contrary to the Bible. He says that it's okay to go to a football game on the Sabbath and he said that I am too black and white with the Bible. So I'm just, I know it's discouraged and I don't know, I don't know what to do. I don't want to go back there. I'm looking for a new church. So can you give me some points on there? Yeah, all right. So the, the question is if you're if you're in a church and, um, you know, the pastor is telling you something that uh, he believes categorically untrue, 
Well, that often will cast the other teachings uh, under a light of suspicion. You, you wonder, what else is he saying that I may not be aware of that is not biblical? And so it is cause for concern. I would not say that, uh, you know, if people in our church, Pastor Ross and I both uh, pastor at the same church, if they said, if I ever hear Pastor Doug say anything wrong, I'm not coming back, there'd be nobody left. Because I'm sure I've said things wrong because we're humans and the Bible says, uh, what in the abundance of words sin is not lacking uh, sometimes you just misspeak so if someone said you know as soon as he says something wrong or he mispronounces something I'm not coming back but then there's the other extreme where if you sit under uh, erroneous teachings um, that can affect your perspective and um, you see in ancient Israel that whenever the king was not dedicated to God gradually the whole nation seemed to slip away because it followed the leadership so, you know, that's something you have to pray about. I, I don't know. Uh, I, I, I would be surprised if, uh, if a pastor tells people there's nothing wrong with going to a football game on the Sabbath day. Uh, it's, you know, it's, that's holy time for worshiping God and the environment of a football game with people, you know, kind of calling out for the, uh, <laughs> the defeat of their enemy or their opponent just is not the right m mind and attitude and place for worship. So that would really, really surprise me. But... Nothing, I guess, really surprises me anymore. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So in that case, Pastor Doug, what you're suggesting is, you know, if, it's, if we're in a church that is clearly not preaching the Bible or advocating teaching, teachings that are not biblical, uh, you know, we've said something, we've spoken to the leadership. At, at some point, I think we want to find ourselves with those who are following the Bible as closely as they can. So that might mean looking for another church. And you brought up a very good point that I just want to expand a little bit is... If you've got a pastor and he says something that is just out of left field that surprises you, uh, respect him enough to go to him and even for his own soul, approach him and say, you know, according to the Bible, that is not right. And in a loving spirit and humility, you know, it might bring them to conviction and turn them around. And so make at least an effort to r be reconciled with your brother, so to speak, and, and try and draw him back. But if they're firm and preaching error, then it's probably not healthy to continue going. Okay, we've got Steve listening in California. Steve, welcome to the program. Hi, Pastors. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. Um, my question is, when Cain was banished, um, he went to the land of Nod. Who lived in the land of Nod? Well, in the very beginning, the land was talking about an area, a region that was later named. It's just telling you where he went. You know, there's no people there yet. And so when, when Cain left, he went to a part of this virgin world country and developed it. And it was later named according to what the various patriarchs named it. But when they first went, it had no name because there were no aborigines or other people living there. So I think Moses just just telling us what where that region yeah. uh, is now. And um, there's more than one place called Nob, actually, in the Bible, David. There's a place not far uh, from the Philistines called Nob, too, but that's not the one that Cain went to. And, of course, a lot of things changed. This, of course, happened before the flood, and so many years passed, and then you had the flood, and then you had the writing of the Bible during the time of Moses. So uh, it's referring to a place that was fairly well-known to people at the time when Genesis was written by Moses. Yep. All right, thanks for your call, Steve. We've got Daniel in Canada. Daniel, welcome to the program. Hi. Um. Pastors, um, this is Daniel here. So 
God, I mean, as Satan tempted Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, and our hearts became hard, just like God said our hearts are evil, like, why did God allow our hearts to become evil in the first place? Why must we suffer for the sins of Adam and Eve? Yeah, and you could even expand that question and say, you know, why are some children born with birth defects because of the bad living habits of their parents? You know, some kids are born with uh, cerebral palsy because the parents had alcohol problems. And why are people in Ukraine suffering? Because uh, you've got, uh, you know, an individual that's bombing them. What do they do? Um, sin, it, well, first of all, let me back up and go to the very heart of it. God made his intelligent creatures free with a free will to choose to love him or choose not to love him. And as soon as man chose to uh, distrust God and not to love God, his compass needle inside was broken. What I mean by that is we're normally created to love God first. The great commandment is love the Lord with all your heart, even more than yourself, and then love your neighbor as you love yourself. And when man fell into sin, all of a sudden, Adam and Eve are blaming each other. They're not getting along, and they're blaming God. They're blaming the devil and the serpent. And, and all of a sudden, um, man's hearts became hard because of sin. God didn't just say, I'm going to harden their hearts. It was what happened because of sin. But making man free to love means he's free to not love. Otherwise, God is forcing them to love. And that's not love. And, of course, freedom does have consequences. And we need that. I mean, if you have freedom to choose to love and to be a blessing and to be an encouragement to somebody, well, then you also have freedom to uh, hurt and discourage others. And uh, people make their choices. So the choices that we make does have an impact upon those around us. Absolutely. And, of course, the devil's choices made an impact upon Adam and Eve and, mm -hmm. of course, all of their descendants. All right. Thank you, Daniel. We've got Caleb listening in New York. Hi, Caleb. Pastor Bachelor, how you doing? Really good. Thank you for calling. I'm good, thank you. Well, um, by the way, I have a question. I'm reading the Bible right now, and um, I want to know two questions. Which version is better to read? Right now I'm reading the NIV version, which is easier for me to understand than the King James Version. I want to know if that's okay. And two, I read the Gospels before, and not until I started watching your sermon. I started understanding more things I've missed, clearly like I've missed. I was wondering, like, is there a way, like, is there a pattern I should read the Bible to get more understanding? Yeah, well, all right, let's, well, good questions. All right, first part of the question, and, you know, Pastor Ross might answer slightly different than I would. I think there's several good translations of the Bible you can read that are, they're, uh, they're translations from what they call the Textus Receptus, which is, I think, the most accurate and that would be, of course, King James is the classic in English. And when we say translations, we're talking about English translations. Um, right now I'm reading through the English Standard Version, which is also a translation from the Textus Receptus that is a good. The American Standard Version, the New King James Version, is what I usually preach from every week is the New King James Version. Um, I don't know, Pastor Ross, do you have some other favorite? Yeah, you know, maybe just to add to that, there's a difference that we need to understand between a translation and a paraphrase. Now, we're just talking about English. So a translation is, is where you take the original Greek and Hebrew, a little bit of Aramaic, and you translate that into English. But a paraphrase might be where, you know, you could do this, I could do this. We take an English 
translation and we rewrite it uh, in other words and we bring out different ideas it's more devotional i'm not saying all paraphrases are wrong but if we're going to study to find doctrinal you know depth we want to go with a good translation and um we also got to remember the Bible wasn't written originally in English. It was written in Greek and Hebrew, and that's where having a concordance and being able to compare Scripture with Scripture and go back and look at some of the original ways the words were used is always helpful, and that really enlarges a person's study of the Bible. Yeah, and let the Bible interpret itself. Uh, if you see a, a word and you think, I wonder what that word means, look at other places in the Bible where that term or that word is used, and usually through context of it, you can say, oh, now I see what they're saying. So uh, that just happened to me this week when we were studying about Moses and it said that rock that followed them was Christ. And I was picturing this boulder rolling around through the wilderness that kept giving him water. And then I looked up where it says rock and I said, oh no, Moses is talking about God. He calls God the rock many times in Deuteronomy. So uh, just by comparing it with other places is usually one of the best ways. And how do we study the Bible? Well, again, Pastor Ross might be a little different than me, but um, I'm always reading through the Bible at different points. I think you're trying to read through the whole Bible in how long? Yeah, well, there's different programs you can do. You can actually read through the Bible in 90 days. It's about an hour of reading every day. didn't realize you could actually get through it that quickly. So, yeah, I try to read through the Bible at least once or twice a year. And then there's some great commentaries as well that you can read alongside that. That really helps to, to bring it to light. There's different ways of reading, Pastor. Like you can just read it to get the big picture, which, you know, if you're going to read through the Bible in a year, you're doing a lot of reading, and you're getting the big picture, which is good. But there's also where you, you focus more on a shorter passage of Scripture and really try to squeeze out everything that that chapter or that passage has to say. And that's what takes a little more time. That's where you compare Scripture with Scripture. And both is good. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah, I read, I use the computer program. I use Logos and uh, also use a free one called uh, eSword. And I find between the two of them, I get some great commentaries and some great tools. So that's probably more than uh, <laughs> that gets you started. Yeah, you can read through the Bible. You can start with the New Testament, read the, the history, meaning you go from Genesis through the Kings and then jump to the New Testament. Thanks so much, Caleb. Hope that helps a little. We've got Robert listening from New Jersey. Robert, welcome to the program. Good evening, Pastor uh, Pastor Doug and Pastor Russ. Evening. Good evening. My question is, is just concerning. Um, did it rain prior to the flood or not? And is there evidence from the Bible on either? And I'll take my answer off the air. All right. Yeah. Thank you very much. Uh, I believe that the Bible's pretty clear that prior to the flood, it had not rained, and. Um, you can the verse, Pastor. I, I know where you're yeah, going go with ahead. it. <laughs> Genesis, I just found it on the computer. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 6. It says, speaking of before the flood, oh, actually verse 5. It says, before any plant of the field was in the earth and before any herb of the field had grown, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth, and there was no man to till the ground, but a mist went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. Yeah. So... It appears, and not only from what you read in the Bible, but just from the fossil record, that prior to the flood, that there was a, an envelope of water, vapor or something, that sort of surrounded the whole planet that polarized the rays and gave an even temperature around the planet. Because even in, uh, what do you call it, Antarctica, up in Siberia, they find fossils of ferns, which you know are usually grown in a tropical climate. So the whole the world was changed after the flood 
and it didn't rain like it does now. I think there was just moisture and, and mist that kind of irrigated and uh, watered things. All right. Well, thank you, Richard. We've got uh, Pat listening in Arizona. Pat, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you, Pat. My question is, is gambling a sin? I believe so. Um, Pastor Ross and I just came back from Las Vegas, but I never saw the inside of a casino. <laughs> <laughs> we weren't gambling. <laughs> we were doing some evangelistic programs there. But, you know, the, the reason, it, well, first of all, the Bible says, make not, do not make haste to be rich, and he that makes haste to be rich will uh, not be without guilt. And so the idea of getting rich quick by playing numbers, first of all, 99.9% um, .9 of the people that do that lose money because the whole system is set up where the house wins. And uh, it's anything that becomes an addiction, Christians should avoid. There are people who actually become addicted to gambling and it destroys their lives and they can't stop. It's like a psychosis. Um, and I remember doing a meeting in, in another country and a lady came up to me just sobbing and she says, I'm addicted to gambling and, and you know, I've, I've mortgaged my home, I've run up our credit cards, my husband's getting ready to leave me and I can't stop. And even before I got done counseling with her, she says, but there's this one more race. And I think if I win that race, I can win it all back. And I couldn't believe she just she was thinking about the next bet, hmm. even as we talk. Well, you know, there's another aspect of gambling that we need to bear in mind as a Christian is you, if you do get lucky and you do win, you winning at a lot of other people's losing. So yeah. you winning because of others' misfortune. Yeah. So you're really taking advantage of other people. That's the same thing with the lottery. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, and you know, it's interesting. You study the history of people that have won the lottery, and most of them don't do very well. If you look what happens in the next couple the of years. The money disappears. Some even quick. get murdered. Yeah. <laughs> it's not good. All right, thanks for your call, Pat. We've got Glenn listening in Ohio. Glenn, welcome to the program. Good evening. Thank you very much for taking my call. This is the misquoting of the scripture, 2 Corinthians 5 8. And I think it has doctrinal implications right there. Most people say that Paul said to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And that's not what that says. And people misquote it. Can you help me understand what the proper understanding is? Yeah, we'll do our best. All right, so our friends, if you want to go to 2 Corinthians 5, 8, and this is often quoted when it talks about people dying. Um, and Paul says, and I'll start with verse, uh, yeah, we'll start with verse uh, eight, yes, we are confident, yes, well pleased rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. And then you need to read on here. It says, therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one of us might receive the things done in the body according to what he's done, whether good or bad. And so, um, you know, Paul, earlier in that passage, he says, because I'm... Uh, I'm kind of in a, uh, a a quandary between two things. He said, on one hand, he says, I want to, I'd love to depart and be with the Lord, meaning when a Christian dies, their next conscious thought is going to be the resurrection and the presence of the Lord. But Paul said, it's needful for you that, you know, I stay here. Well, it is true that if we die and these bodies turn back to dust, the Bible's very clear. And, um, for the believer, their next conscious thought, it's there's no sensation of time is to be the presence of the Lord. But it doesn't happen until there's a judgment and a resurrection. 
You know, and it also says Paul was a prophet, so he had visions. Uh, in another place, he actually talks about seeing something in vision, and he says, whether I was absent from the body or in the body, I can't quite remember. <laughs> and then he tells the story. So, you know, Paul was at times taken off in vision. That would be considered absent from the body. But I think here it's talking about, you know, when we receive our reward, it's at the second coming of Christ, and we get these immortal bodies, and um, you know, uh, we get yeah. to live with him. First verse in chapter 5, for we know that if our earthly house, this tent is destroyed. Yep. That's pretty talking clear. About it's talking body. about the body. When you're dead. Right, right. Yeah. So thank you, Richard. Thank you. We've got uh, uh, Yvonne listening from Mexico. Yvonne, welcome to the program. Hello. Hi. As near, as near as Irish descendant, can we celebrate St. Patrick's Day? My family, too, is Irish. So... um. There's no scripture that tells us there's anything sacred about St. Patrick's Day. And um, I'm sure that if Patrick, Patrick was a very godly man. He was actually a Protestant. It's interesting that the Catholics made Patrick a saint and he was a Protestant. And Patrick was also a Sabbath keeper. Some people don't know that. He, he kept the Seventh-day Sabbath. But um, nowhere are we told to worship uh, saints in the Bible. And so... Uh, you know, sometimes for fun in North America, it's a tradition. You'll wear a green tie, and people say it's St. Patrick's Day, and so too, just uh, to commiserate with our Irish friends. And my family's part Irish. My brother had flaming red hair. But, um, you know, we'll wear something green on St. Patrick's Day. But, um, uh, yeah, it's I wouldn't worship it as far as a spiritual holiday. So I hope that helps a little bit. Thank you, Yvonne. Appreciate your question. All right, we've got Anita listening from uh, Maryland. Anita, welcome to the program. Hi, how are you, Pastor? Yeah. Can you hear me? We can. Okay. Um, I uh, today, uh, March twenty seventh, is my is the third anniversary of my eighteen year old's death. We didn't know till he died that he somebody was giving him medical marijuana. Um, he he was acting very aggressive and violent towards us. His personality totally changed. I called him at work, made a big mistake, not knowing much about marijuana, thinking, you know, it's a harmless drug like everyone else. I was totally wrong. He actually, after work, after I called him and I yelled at him, instead of coming straight home, he used all the marijuana he had because he knew mom and dad are going to take everything away. He had a psychosis, crashed his car into a tree near our house, survived that crash, walked out onto um, I-95 and was run over and killed. He was hit. The first person that hit him, the first car, was a 28-year-old. Um, the history of DUI, marijuana drunk driving. So my question is kind of loaded. Um, I feel extremely guilty because I caused his death. And I, I, Plus, Aaron wasn't, was not baptized. So I kind of... I'm wondering... Is there a chance that he could be in heaven and will I be forgiven for what I did? All right, let's start with the second part of that question. First of all, you know, our hearts go out to you. I know this is, um, that's a heartbreaking. That's, that's like one of the worst things that could happen is losing a child. And uh, my wife and I, we lost a 21-year-old son years ago. And uh, it's just the worst news that a parent can have. So we, uh, we empathize with you. And then part of this I want to deal with, first of all, as you said, can I be forgiven? Be careful not to blame yourself 
uh, for this. You were doing probably what any parent would do. You were concerned about your son's health and well-being. And so, you know, you may not have uh, reacted the way if you could play it over again, you might do it differently. But you can't beat yourself up forever about that because you certainly had no intention of doing him harm. You were worried about him. And just, you know, the Bible tells us that um, time and chance happens to all is what Solomon says. So be careful not to, to read too much meaning into it. It was an accident. And so there was a terrible, tragic accident. And then, of course, you're wondering now, what does this mean? Is there a chance that I'll see my son again? This is one of those situations where you've got to know that God is good, God is love, and that God loves your son infinitely more than you do, and he will do what is good. And so you just put this in God's hands and trust him. Uh, you know, we obviously in the program, we can't put ourselves in the position of the eternal and say we think he will or won't be saved. You know, there's uh, guidelines in the Bible for following him. But I think we're going to be surprised when we get to heaven that there were some exceptions we didn't anticipate. And so just, you know, Bible talks about the second coming of Jesus as the blessed hope. And so just hang on to hope and live for the Lord. Trust that he forgives you. God is good and God is love, Anita. And if it's okay, you know, Pastor Austin, I'd like to have a, a brief prayer with you because I know that you and others like you have, um, have lost children and your hearts are breaking. Loving Lord, we just pray that you'll be with Anita and I pray and her family, her husband, and, and help them to just to heal from this uh, tragedy that's uh, touched their lives. And I pray through it, you've told us that you can bring good from all things that happen to us and uh, that there can be redemption that will come from this story. And so be with them in comfort and bless. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Appreciate your call, Anita. Pastor Ross, yes. If we just want to let our friends know, we got about one minute past that. I don't think we have time to take one more call. But the program is not over because we are going to say goodbye to those who are joining us on satellite radio. But for the rest of those who are listening on AFTV and land-based radio stations, we're going to be coming back with a uh, rapid-fire Bible question segment where we're going to actually try and answer as many of the Bible questions that you have sent in to the ministry through Facebook or through YouTube, or if you want, you can just send the question to amazingfacts.org. Matter of fact, I'm getting the, the address right here. B-A-L questions at amazingfacts.org. That's the website if you have a Bible question that you want to submit to the program, and Pastor Doug will try to answer as many of these programs as we can. Yep. Yeah, sometimes folks, uh, they, they say, I'd like to ask a question, but I'm a little scared about getting on the air. And you can email your questions to us. And at the uh, tail end of the program, uh, just after we say goodbye to the satellite listeners, we're going to be going and uh, answering some of those questions that have come in via email. For the rest of you, keep in mind, you can continue to study and worship and uh, enjoy the uh, blessings and programs of Amazing Facts at amazingfacts.org. Thank you for listening to today's broadcast. We hope you understand your Bible even better than before. Bible Answers Live is produced by Amazing Facts International, a faith-based ministry located in Granite Bay, California. Hello, friends. Welcome back to our special bonus Bible questions segment. Well, Pastor Doug, we've got several questions that have been sent in, so we're going to see how many we can get through tonight. First question that we have is, does it really help to pray for somebody else's salvation? Absolutely. Now, 
not after they're gone. I mean, some people say, well, burn a candle and say a prayer after they're gone. The Bible says that it's appointed unto man once to die and after that the judgment. But while they're, the Bible says, where there's life, there's hope. And so you pray for their salvation, uh, absolutely. Uh, Moses interceded for the whole nation. And you got many cases in the Bible where um, even Jesus said to Peter, I have prayed for you that your faith does not fail. So if Jesus prayed for others and if Abraham interceded for Lot and Moses for the nation, uh, we should be praying for others as well. Okay. Next question that we have, what is the difference between the moral law and the ceremonial law? Yeah, very good question. Well, when you say moral law, that's usually talking about the, the Ten Commandments, which is a summary of the law of God. Sometimes that's called the Decalogue, Deca meaning ten, that Ten Commandments that you would find in uh, um, Exodus chapter 20. But when you read in Deuteronomy chapter 4, when God gives the Ten Commandments, he also tells us, and I think it's in verse 13, it says, God gave me Ten Commandments, which he commanded us to perform, and at that time the Lord commanded me to give you statutes and judgments. So there were a number of laws that revolved around the sanctuary and its services and its ceremonies. They are called the ceremonial law. Sacrificing lambs, circumcision, all nailed to the cross. Okay, another question that we have. How do I determine the will of God? Well, you know, I wrote a little book called Determining the Will of God. You can download for free, but I'll give you a couple of highlights. I think I give a dozen points in the book. Uh, one is uh, study the Word. Uh, there's guidance in the Word. There's guidance through the Holy Spirit speaking to us. You'll hear a voice guiding you through your conscience. Christian counsel. Look for providential openings. Uh, for the Word of God, and be willing to be faithful to wait until you know if it's a big decision. Okay, last question that we have here, Pastor Doug. If the Jews didn't believe that Jesus is the Messiah, why did they stop sacrificing lambs? Well, they kind of were forced to stop sacrificing lambs. They did right at the crucifixion when the veil was rent, but then when the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, that's where they had brought all their sacrifices. And God told Moses, don't do it on your own. Bring it to this place. Well, friends, we really are out of time now. We want to thank you for tuning in to Bible Answers Live. Look forward to studying His Word with you again next week. This broadcast is a previously recorded episode. If you'd like answers to your Bible-related questions on the air, please call us next Sunday between 7 p.m. and 8 p.m. Pacific Time. To take advantage of the offers you've heard on this broadcast, Call us at 800-835-6747 or visit our website at amazingfacts.org. Tune in next time for more Bible Answers Live. Honest and accurate answers to your Bible questions.